Um, if you recall, we've been uh, kind of breaking down the book of Zechariah into three main sections. Uh, the first section uh, was uh, speaking of, um, you know, the eight visions of Zechariah. Um, dreams, visions, all in one night, having to do with Israel, you know, and its future and the ending on the millennial kingdom. And that was chapters one through six. Section two talks about, you know, these questions the people raise. Remember, should we weep and fast and mourn as we've done all these years? And they asked the Lord some questions in chapters seven and eight. But chapters nine through 14, the third section, uh, speak of both the first and second coming of Christ. Um, now, if you just had the book of Zechariah to go on, it might be hard to discern which one would be first and which one would be second, or even if there were a first and second coming. But when you um, know the way the story shakes out, it really makes Zechariah come to life. So we have the advantage of you know, hindsight, looking back to Zechariah and seeing how he did speak of both the first advent and the second advent, which is pretty fun and, and it helps us understand that. Um, so uh, here in Zechariah 10, uh, starting you know, with God's divine influence and his work on the people of Israel, he's gonna, he's gonna really uh, reach into their lives personally and practically and, and spock, uh, you know, I should say speak about uh, their, their spiritual health and well-being along with their physical health and well-being. And there's kind of a crossing over of the figurative and the literal, and we'll see that uh, in these sections. There's seven little sections within chapter 10. If you're a note taker, you can jot down these seven sections. The first section is verse one. We're gonna call this um, a divine reign. Uh, check it out, Zechariah 10, verse one. It says, ask ye of the Lord reign in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone <clears throat> grass in the field. Here we have um, this, you know, admonition just to ask the Lord for rain. Boy, people in California need to start asking uh, because if they haven't already, because they're doing those rolling water blackouts or whatever where people can't water and stuff like that. And water is gonna be shut down. Like it's a big drought right now uh, there in California. But um, interesting, you know, the, the people of God here in Zechariah, um, this, this literal uh, asking of rain. Now, is this a literal rain or is it a spiritual rain? That's a question you might wanna ask when we talk about rain, especially in prophetic uh, sort of context here. Um, and the answer to this is both, literal and figurative. Uh, when we talk about the former and latter rain, uh, one of the things is, is if you're a Bible student, you start to recognize that the Bible talks kind of about both. And, uh, and that's the case, especially when you're talking about the, the end times and what have you. Um, but one of the things that I, I like about this is God is, is um, you know, speaking to the children of Israel about what he wants to do for them. And he's talking about, just ask me and I'll give you rain. And before we get to the, the rain topic, don't forget that God, loves you and he wants to work in your life. Even if you're a rascal, even if you're a sinner, <clears throat> you know, the children of Israel are sinners. They've made huge mistakes, giant, giant mistakes. And by the time Zachariah's on the scene, you know, you might even call them sort of in somewhat of a lost cause, at least we would, but God never calls his people a lost cause. He never gives up on his people. Um, and, um, you know, it's interesting because there are times in, in our lives where we go through dry times, where we feel like the Lord doesn't seem to care or maybe, maybe he's forgotten us, you know. 
But the Lord doesn't forget us. He's got a plan and a purpose and a timing. And let me remind you, his timing is often slower than our timing. We often wanna do stuff right here and right now. And we wonder, what's going on? Why, you know, why hasn't Pastor Brett called me to cover Wednesday night yet? Uh, why, why he's gone or what, what's the deal? And I wanna do it right now, Lord, I wanna serve. I wanna do this. I wanna go in the mission field. I wanna, and, and the Lord just says, chill out. You know, one of the things I like to remind people is the, you know, when, when you're being used by the Lord, sometimes it doesn't always work out very fast and that's okay. Um, you know, uh, do you really want to, uh, you know, uh, be like Daniel? Some of you might, yeah, I wanna be like Daniel, constantly hearing from God getting the word of the Lord, Daniel, yes. But if you're gonna be a Daniel, you'll probably have to bring in the lion's den too. Uh, remember that. And you know, one thing I like to bring, bring out in people's remembrance about Daniel is um, Daniel's whole thing started when he was around 14 years old. Freshman in high school, if you can picture that. Uh, 14 years old and his ministry went all the way into his 80s when he was 80 years old. Um, so the 12 chapters of Daniel sort of encompass from the age of 14 to 80. So in 65-ish years, um, you know, you think, well, that's an amazing ministry that Daniel had. But if you do the math um, of all the major events in Daniel's life in those 65 years of ministry, that means the Lord spoke to Daniel once every 20 years. Like we, we read the book of Daniel, oh man, he had such a powerful walk where he's constantly hearing from the Lord. Nope, once every 20 years, uh, if you do the math. Um, and I wonder if sometimes we get, you know, we read the Bible, like make me like a Daniel or like a Moses. Daniel got 20 years gap. Moses got 40 years gap. 40 years, then 40 more years. And then his ministry began at 80. Some of you, there's still hope, uh, you know, for ministry to start when you're at the, the spring chicken age of 80. That's when Moses' whole thing first started is 80 years old. That's an amazing thing. I mean, he was being trained in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life. Then he spent the next 40 of his life on the backside of the desert tending sheep, which was the lowest job on the totem pole back in those days to be the, the shepherd of sheep. But Daniel, pardon me, Moses, he had to spend 40 years tending sheep before the burning bush came and that whole part of the story really uh, happened. So 40 years the Lord took between times um, so don't be bummed if you feel like you're going through dry times. The, the key is to kind of hang in there and to keep putting your trust in the Lord, even if it seems dry or like a desert time. But here the Lord says to them, ask for the div divine rain, both spiritual and figurative. Um, by the way, during Zachariah's time, there was a literal uh, dryness and also a spiritual dryness. Um, and the Bible speaks of both things. Uh, maybe you remember in the book of Joel, there were some prophecies that were given about the former rains and the latter rains. In fact, you might wanna jot these down in context of verse one here. Um, Joel 2.23, we're told, and this is more the literal uh, rain. Remember the, the book of Joel was about the, the, the swarm of locusts that had destroyed all the crops. And so the people, they needed some rain that, that new crops would grow. So there in Joel, he said, be glad then you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God for he hath given you the former rain moderately and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. So that was the prophecy Joel gave about a literal needing some precipitation, rain, literal rain. But then Joel sort of mysteriously, his gaze goes further than the local you know, uh, drought 
And then in chapter two of Joel, verse 28, a few verses later, he says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Um, the idea of pouring out rain, former and latter, and then pouring out my spirit upon you. And of course, talking both spiritually and literally, they needed rain, both the, the Holy Spirit being poured out and water. Water is often linked to the Holy Spirit. And so we, we see that link. So when Peter gives his sermon in the book of Acts chapter two, he quotes from the prophet Joel. And he says, you know, remember the, the day of Pentecost is these men are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it as but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your, daughter, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is, we need the Lord to pour out his rain uh, upon us spiritually, his spirit to, to fill us. And that's something that I think the church is, is really uh, lacking today. And one of the things that's really heartbreaking is how I think this, the Holy Spirit is so often misrepresented. So much so that some of you, when I talk about the Holy Spirit, you're like, yeah, 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 whatever, Brett. Can you talk about other stuff now? Because the Holy Spirit, there's been people who've abused the idea of the Holy Spirit and done things that are outside of the Bible that are just stupid human things. People doing dumb stuff and making it seem like it's the Holy Spirit. And we have to be really cautious about that. But one of the, one of the problems with the church today, and, and I see it in myself, and that is to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so, you know, kind of in a way of speaking here. You know, the Holy Spirit is, is to be um, seen in the church of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, we become God's chosen frozen. And we don't want that. You don't wanna just be, you know, the, 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 the Christians that are, you know, doctrinally sound, but there's no life in the church. You gotta have the Holy Spirit moving. That's why, you know, Paul told the church there at Thessalonica, he said in chapter five, verse 16 through 22, he said, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Then in verse 19, he said, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. Man, this verse alone, we could spend months praying about it, thinking about it, uh, how should we apply this to our lives? Um, but not quenching the spirit and not despising prophesyings. But I thought John the Baptist was the last of the prophets. He was. But don't forget, um, th this is a nuance. And some people say this and people get all upset when I talk about this, but it's just really clear biblically that the prophets like the Old Testament days, those days are over when John the Baptist, he was the last of the prophets. That's what Jesus said. But that's not the last of the word prophecy in the New Testament. In the New Testament, prophecy is something uh, that the Holy Spirit does in manifesting himself in, in this new dispensation of time through the church. There was no church in the Old Testament. Prophets were the way that God spoke to the people. Uh, and then the John the Baptist was the last of that. Then Jesus dies, raises up from the grave. And then the church, we get to have the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And one of those manifestations is the word of prophecy. So if somebody's, maybe they're innocently saying, I am a prophet of the Lord. And they're going around on a, um, you know, a speaking tour because they're a prophet. Um, the answer is no, they're not. They're not a prophet. Now, they may not understand the nuances, but they, they, they may be giving 
a word of prophecy from God by his spirit to people in the church. What do you mean, Brett? What's the difference? It's a difference. The word prophecy is defined uh, for us later on uh, in the New, New Testament as being giving, you know, in Acts chapter, um, uh, pardon me, 1 Corinthians 14, it says that, you know, prophecy is, is a you know, word of edification, exhortation, or comfort. Nothing about foretelling the future in that description. Uh, that's the Old Testament prophet, like Daniel and Isaiah and those guys. But we don't necessarily tell the future, but, but it's more of a thus saith the Lord kind of thing, where if the Holy Spirit comes upon any person, anybody who's a Christian, who I believe is open to the, the, the filling of the Spirit and having the Spirit come upon them, they can speak a word from the Lord. And maybe you've even done that without even knowing. Uh, you know, have you ever been talking to someone when, you didn't really know what to tell them and the Lord just put something on your heart to tell them that was, that was either comforting or an exhortation or something to edify. And you just got something that was kind of, you kind of sensed it wasn't from your brain. Um, I love that when that happens, by the way, um, because then you know the, the, the word of the Lord through the Holy Spirit has given you a word of prophecy for that. Uh, the prophetic utterance is what you might call it um, that's there in First Corinthians chapter uh, 16. Now, the idea of quenching the spirit is just saying, I'm not into that. that was, I'm a you know, cessationist. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't move like he did in the book of Acts. Uh, that ceased. And so if you're that person, you're probably part of God's chosen frozen. And you're cutting off a bunch of what the New Testament says as part of church behavior, um, along with speaking in tongues. That's one of those things that I believe is still for today. But there is a big priority there. See, here's the thing. Um, you know, what is the Lord gonna do in the last days? He's gonna pour out his spirit in the last days. That's what the Lord says. Um, and he wants to do that. But it's like the Holy Spirit turns on the spigot. But the question is, are you quenching or turning off the spigot? Um, uh, I think we should be open to the Holy Spirit moving in our lives. In fact, Luke, Jesus told us this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? So to, to ask the Lord, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit and, and um, give me the power by your spirit? Now, why do you want the Holy Spirit to gyrate on the floor? <laughs> Some churches, that's what the Holy Spirit means to them. That's not in the Bible. Uh, doing the worm on the church floor, that's just people being stupid. Um, Bible doesn't say anything about that. Um, that's just people making stuff up. Um, now, speaking in tongues can be kind of a crazy situation in some churches. You know, like uh, some churches, if I'm preaching up here and suddenly you get the Holy Spirit, man, you'd burst up and start speaking, so speaking in tongues. If that happens here, I'll tell you what'll happen. I'll tell you to sit down and be quiet. Uh, because there's a time and a place for that. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Somebody might say, well, I couldn't control it. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Start speaking in tongues. Uh, no, that doesn't happen that way. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And there's a time and a place for speaking in tongues. Uh, that's very important to know that. And there, uh, you say, well, Brett, isn't the church a uh, time? Well, it, it depends on that leadership and when they are saying we are opening, I think home fellowships, small groups, uh, in a big setting like that, at a, at a Wednesday night Bible study, that would be not decent and in order. Uh, and the, the chapter there talking about tongues, well, check this out. It says in 1 Corinthians 14, kind of the manual on prophecy and tongues is this chapter. It says, in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. 
Paul sets a priority on the speaking in tongues as way down on the list compared to speaking a word of understanding. Um, so to be students of the word on how the Holy Spirit moves in his church, man, we need to do that. Um, and keeping the parameters that the word sets on speaking in tongues and about uh, Holy Spirit stuff. Um, and, um, and by the way, the Lord puts bigger and better gifts in priorities as there's better gifts of the Holy Spirit or manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, um, but he that prophesieth, it says, speaketh unto men, edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's by definition. And so prophecy is to edify others and to build up others. Tongues are uh, spoken to sort of edify the person speaking in tongues. It's something a little more inward and, and I, you might even call it selfish. Uh, compared to prophecy. That's why prophecy gets the higher uh, list. So the, the, the person who's giving a word of prophecy is not a prophet, but they're given a gift of prophecy for that moment at that time. And any uh, spirit-filled Christian can uh, speak a word of prophecy. You don't have to be a prophet and show your prophet card uh, when you do that. Uh, good news. You can do that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, now, back to our uh, you know, analogy, the Lord says, I'm gonna pour out my spirit in the latter days. And that's really what this verse is talking about, both literal rain, but figurative rain, pouring out his spirit on the people, the Jews during that time and also in future times. In the Bible, there's several... Um, types of the Holy Spirit. You've got rain and water being a type of the Holy Spirit. You've got the holy anointing oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. What's another picture of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, anybody? The dove. I love that it's a dove, especially for you Pentecostal folks, we love you. Athe Creek, we're charismatics with a safety belt. And our safety belt is the word of God. Um, I love it's the dove, it's not a chicken running around with his head cut off. Some churches you think, oh man, that's, that's chicken. The Holy Spirit is a chicken. Nope. Uh, shrieking eagle. Ah! Nope, that's not that. I love that the Holy Spirit is pictured as a dove, not a dodo bird stumbling around. Uh, there's, have you ever seen people so-called drunk in the spirit? Uh, totally made up stuff people are doing that uh, they call legitimate. But, uh, but I, I do find it interesting, it's a dove. And remember what happens when Noah sends the dove from the ark. And it says that, you know, the first finding, you know, uh, the, the dove had no place to land uh, and he reached out and took in the dove. Um, you know, too many of us can be like that, closed off to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a, a big mistake. Um, Jesus told the disciples to go and wait for the coming upon of the Holy Spirit and it'll bring you power. And the, I, I always like to bring up that word, the Greek word for power is that Greek word dunamis. We've talked about this a lot. And it's where we get our word dynamite. And the Greek word dunamis means power. It's a mighty work, strength. Um, and I love that. Um, so, so where do we land on this? You know, um, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, this is where we land at Athey Creek, verses 39 through 40 says, wherefore brethren, covet to prophesy. In other words, that's something you should wanna do. Uh, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. That last phrase is the operative thing. Let all things be done. Now our Pentecostal brothers are like, let all things be done. And our Baptist brothers are like, decently and in order. And uh, I'd say we're Bapticostals. Uh, let all things be done, but let them be done decently in order. And that's the mantra of the word. Um, but don't forget to actually do them. I think if we error, if we, Athe Greek, error, we probably err on the safe side of being more uh, decent and in order. I'm just gonna say that. 
but I, I think we have to be careful to be open to the working and the power of the Holy Spirit and not quench uh, the Spirit. Um, so all that to say, one of my favorite expressions, as it should be yours, not, not tongues. Our favorite expression should be the word of prophecy. That's what the Lord says, covet prophecy over tongues. That's what it says. And the word of prophecy is like I share with you, edification, exhortation, and comfort. By the way, the super, supernatural nature of the Holy Spirit, I believe it's meant to be supernaturally natural. Um, there's no spinning heads and green vomit flying. There's no gyrating and oh, quiver of the voice. Oh, that's just people being stupid. Um, when Jesus did great miracles, there was no antics and circus and dancing bears and clowns and wheelchairs flying off the stage. Oh, demonstrate, run it back and forth and fall over. That was, just, that was just people being dumb. But Jesus just calmed the storm, be still. He didn't gyrate, he didn't shriek or scream or you know, do an incantation or any, he didn't Harry Potter it up or anything like that. Jesus just said, be still, peace. Like it was just very supernaturally natural. I believe that's the way the Holy Spirit moves and it's not an ugly thing. The Holy Spirit never is a grotesque or ugly thing. So let all things be done uh, decently and in order. Now, back to our pouring out of the rain. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, the, the, the literal part, you know, where they needed rain, this, is, this was happening all throughout Israel's history. Whenever, question, whenever Israel didn't have rain, what was the problem? Anybody remember? Sin, right? That's right. But there were two kinds of sin. Uh, do you remember when, you know, Elijah there in James were reminded what happened there in James 5, 17, where, where Elijah was a man subject like passions like we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. Interesting, three and a half years. Is that an interesting Bible prophecy number? Sure is, three and a half years. Uh, but I, I'm gonna resist the temptation to dive into that. Um, <laughs> And, um, and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, when, when Elijah does this, he's doing this in accordance with the law of the Jews, the Torah. Um, he got it from two main passages. You can jot these down. You can flip over there if you want to, but for sure jot them down in your notes. Uh, first, Deuteronomy chapter 11, um, verse 13 through 17. Let me, let me just read you. It says in Deuteronomy eleven, thirteen. 13, it says, it shall come to pass if you hearken diligently to, to my commandments, which I command you this day to serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul, that I will give you rain in your land in his due season. The first rain and the latter rain that thou mayest gather your corn and your wine and your oil. But um, he goes on and says, take heed to yourselves. Uh, that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and swerve to other gods to worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you and there shut up the heavens, um, that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord gives you. He says, man, if you go and turn aside and worship other gods, man, he says, it'll, it'll uh, cause there to be no rain. Interesting. So the Lord would withhold rain because of uh, turning away from uh, the Lord. And by the way, do you remember at our um, on Sunday I was talking about the the history of Israel, 
And one of the eras I told you about was the Ottoman Turk Empire, remember that? And what, what was one of the biggest things that happened to the, 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 the nation Israel during the Ottoman Turk? The Jews were scattered, remember they're already scattered. But what happened to Israel during the Ottomans? It dried up and became like a desert. And I told you about the Ottomans, how they taxed trees in Israel so that anybody that had trees on their properties, they, they cut them all down. And they literally changed the climate of the whole state of Palestine, as it was called back then, um, changing the climate. And that's when Mark Twain wrote about the dryness and all that. But after the diaspora, the Jews travel back and they start gathering uh, again in Israel. And we're starting to see Israel uh, turn the desert back into a place of like a garden. Um, and so um, one thing you might wanna ask yourself just personally, as we learn from the Old Testament, is if you're going through dry times, now I gotta say this carefully because it's not always this, but it could be, if you're going through spiritually dry times, could it be that there's sin in your life where you're not really just doing what God wants you to do or behaving in a way that the Lord would have you behave? Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, that's not always the case. And be careful on this one. If you're going to someone, the reason you're going through dry times is because you're a sinner. Don't say that. that, that's not what I'm saying. But sometimes it's true. I, I need to remind you of John chapter nine. Remember the disciples made this, this mistake of creating sort of a false dilemma. When they said, you know, they said this, um, and it says, and Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him saying, master, who did sin, this man or his parents? Now you say, well, which one is it, A or B? Um, now, you gotta understand, giving the disciples a bit of a break here, the disciples were taught this is the way it was. It was either one way or the other. The reason a person suffers because of a person's sin or maybe because their parents sinned, but it had to be one of those two. So they're like, which one did this blind guy, was he blind from birth because of his parent, parents' sin or because of something he was gonna do, um, that he was born blind? And then Jesus answers and says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Uh, isn't that an interesting thing that Jesus gave us this little story about the blind man that's in the Bible to make sure that we know that sometimes it's not because of sin at all. It's because God's doing something that's just a different kind of work in a person's life. Um, God was manifesting himself through this blind man somehow, some way. Man, this, this verse takes away a lot of things. Have you ever talked to somebody who says, if you're sick, or you're ailing, or if you're blind or crippled, you, you absolutely can be healed and you should be healed. And if you're not being healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. Um, and have you ever heard that before? There's people that believe that, it's totally wacko. Um, and this is one case, this guy's gonna be blind because God's doing a work in him. It's not because of sin or a lack of faith in him. The Lord's doing a work and making himself known through this man's blindness. Um, okay. Now I told you there's two places, by the way, that talks about the rain being held back. One is because of you know, turning to other gods, but there's another one in Leviticus 26, jot that one down in your notes, where there in Leviticus chapter 26, it says in verses uh, one through four, you shall make no idols or graven image, neither rear up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God, and you'll keep my Sabbaths, Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, I am the Lord. And if you keep my statutes and my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield her increase 
and the trees of the field yield their fruit. One of the things that the Lord says, I will hold back rain is if you don't keep the Sabbaths and if you don't go to the sanctuary and worship with sincerity and with reality. Of course, the not worshiping images of stone, that goes back to the Deuteronomy one as well. But the Lord sort of adds the, to the list here in Leviticus about the holding back of rain because of uh, just an indifference to reverencing the sanctuary of the Lord. A little different than Deuteronomy 11. So the Lord holds back his reign from, from Israel. And that's what's going on literally during Zechariah's time. They're literally going through a drought, but they're also spiritually going through a drought during Zechariah's time. And so what should they do? What's the answer to their dry time of, of literal and spiritual drought? The answer, ask. That's what it says in our verse, back to Zechariah. It says there very clearly, um, the very first word of the chapter, ask ye of the Lord, rain in the time of the latter rain. Um, I, I think this is one of the most simple things that the Lord asks of us to do, but it's one of the last things we do. I'm always amazed, you know, like there's been several times in a situation where maybe I'm sitting and counseling with someone about their life and they're talking about stuff they're going through. And I like to just say, have you really asked the Lord for help on this? And uh, well, yeah, I'm doing that right now. Well, what do you mean? You're, I'm meeting with the pastor. That's not the same thing. Meeting with Pastor Brett is not asking of the Lord help. That's asking of a total dimwit for help. <laughs> you need to ask somebody who knows what they're doing and that's the Lord. Uh, I might just, uh, you know, uh, I know some stuff about the Bible, but, but man, don't forget to ask. I, I think sometimes we think we've asked because we took the notes or we sat in church or we prayed prayers, but have we really just said, Lord, here's my request. Um, and, and I know it sounds simple, but is that why Jesus had to say it so clearly in Matthew 7, 7? Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. What a great promise of the word, Matthew 7, 7. James tells us, you have not because you ask not. So don't forget, you know, I, mean, I know it sounds so simple, but I think we go through times where, you know, we're sick or hurting or broke or, in trouble and we just think, Lord, where are you? But have you, have you asked? You parents know what this is like, you moms and dads, because uh, there's times when your kids, you know, they need something, but all you really want them to do is come and ask you for it. And it's part of their maturity, it's part of their growing up, it's part of them needing to know where, how to ask for help or where their help really comes from. There's, there's lessons that you parents are teaching your kids. When you say, you know what, I'm not gonna really do anything until they come and humble themselves and ask for help. That's when I'm gonna jump in. And, and man, you're ready. You're ready to help right there, right then, whenever they ask, but they need to humbly come and ask. And that's part of growing up. Same is true spiritually. Um, so this idea of ask, ask for the rain and the Lord's gonna send it. That's what he says. But I'll never forget when I was a uh, young kid, we were just starting a church years ago, uh, my family and there's some other people getting together and we were in the middle of a big drought back in, um, oh, it was, it was around 1976 uh, when I was just a 10 year old kid. And there was this real big drought in Southern Oregon. And man, I remember we lived on the river, Applegate River was in our backyard. Um, and it was almost like a trickling creek. It normally it was a river, but it was just, I remember all the irrigation dishes of all the farmers around us, uh, bone dry. Um, and it was just a real bad drought. And I remember when we, um, we got together as a church, uh, and this was across the street from my house. I remember those old Grange halls 
there was an old Grange Hall across the street from my house and we, we rented that place and got a bunch of the neighbors and we just started praying for rain because it was so, so dry and it hadn't rained. I, I think we broke some new records back then. Uh, it hadn't rained for months and months, not a drop. And it was quite a deal because we all went to the Grange Hall and we prayed and as we were praying, this is talking about Holy Spirit stuff. This, some of this will make some of you uneasy. But there was, the, and if, if you only knew the guy, his name was Don Main, and, and he was an old, old friend of mine, and he's in heaven now. But um, Don Main, he actually spoke and said, uh, uh, he said, it was like a word of, of, of knowledge or a word of prophecy. And he said, thus saith the Lord, I'm gonna cause it to rain uh, here in the valley, but not just in the valley, I'm gonna cause it to rain. And, and he, he, I don't remember the exact words. I remember as a kid going, yeah, right. Uh, I knew it was Don and he was a solid dude, but, but still he said, it's gonna rain and the Lord's gonna start something here. Spiritually, he's gonna pour out his rain and pour out his spirit. Even as he's gonna, it's gonna start to rain, um, he's gonna pour out his spirit and that spirit's gonna start and cover the, the earth from the ends of the earth, he said. And, and here we are, just a, a small group of people in an old Grange Hall in the middle of nowhere, Upper Applegate, Oregon. Uh, like what, what, what could happen there? Um, uh, that's, what, that's what we were thinking. Well, um, true story. Uh, and you're not gonna believe, you're thinking I'm making this up. But literally we said, amen. And everybody got up and we started putting the chairs away. And all of a sudden we heard this noise outside. And I'm not kidding you. When we walked in, it was blue skies, hot, sunny. We opened the doors and it was one of the biggest downpours we'd, we'd seen in months and months and months. And it just rained and it rained and it rained. And I remember thinking, wow, what a coincidence, you know, as a 10 year old kid, I'm like, that's really cool. It just kind of worked out, you know. Um, but then what I got to see, um, you know, I got to see the Lord bless the movement that the Lord was doing um, in that church, in that little church, in uh, the, the little Grange. From that church spread a bunch of other churches. And this is one of those churches right here. Like, this is kind of cool, Athey Creek. And, and, you know, I remember uh, the Lord reminded me of this story once. Uh, this is quite a few years ago, but I remember um, the Lord reminded me of that, pro that kind of that word of knowledge that was given. Um, when I got a, an email uh, from a girl who, she said, Pastor Brett, I am a scientist and I live on the South Pole in a, one of those like dome things. And she says, I'm with 30 other scientists. None of them are Christians. And she said, I'm the only Christian in this place on the South Pole. And she says, a satellite, this is quite a few years ago, but she said, a satellite goes over, you know, once every so often, and we know when that is, so we can email and we can get some information. Um, but she said, every time the satellite comes over, I download as many teachings as I can as the satellite's going over from Athey Creek. And she just said how it just was feeding her the, the scriptures and the word of God. And I, and I remember that word from Don made from the ends of the earth how the Lord would start to do something from that little meeting when I was 10 years old. Like I, I just see how the Lord just is so faithful and um, his word is true. And uh, I believe that's the kind of stuff we miss out on when we quench the Holy Spirit. Um, but anyway, enough said about the former and latter rains. I just believe that um, the Lord is doing a great work. And in the last days, you and I should expect even more of that. Because the Bible says the latter days, I will pour out my spirit. Um, so. All that to say, the first thing we see here is a divine rain, verse one. Oh boy, only through verse one. <laughs> here we go, verse two. <laughs> Not only a divine rain, but number two, a divine recompense. Hmm, let's check that out, verse two and three. It says, for the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie. 
and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, they went their way as a flock and were, they were troubled because there was no shepherd. Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds and I punished the goats for the Lord of hosts had visited his flock, the house of Judah, and hath made them his goodly horse in the battle. Interesting, a divine recompense. What's, what's this about? It's about um, the people that were listening to the false leaders. And this is something that was happening in Zechariah's time, but even more so pre-exile in Babylon. Do you remember the prophets that were giving everybody the things they wanted to hear? Meanwhile, the true prophet, prophets were saying things that the people didn't wanna hear. And so the people chose to hear the things they wanted to hear and they blew off the true prophets. Remember that? That was a major theme in Jeremiah, uh, particularly Jeremiah the prophet. They never listened to a word he said. And, and um, should we be concerned about that in the days we live? Well, you better believe it. Matthew chapter 24, remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, for there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. Um, Jesus was talking about this when the disciples asked, what's the end of the world gonna look like? And Jesus said, this is what it's gonna look like. This is one of the signs and wonders that he'd say, following, people following after signs and wonders and, and uh, you know, uh, claiming to be teachers, but are really just false prophets and false teachers. Um, we have to really be careful about this because I've noticed that Satan has been ever so subtle. And there are things that the church thinks is attractive and wonderful, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot of stuff going on in the so-called church today that is not the Lord at all, but it's actually Satan just pulling people off the rail just a little bit. See, Satan doesn't need to completely derail you spiritually. He just needs to get you off the rail just enough to where there's gonna be a train wreck in the future. And that's what the, the, Jesus is talking about. The, there's a deception where even the, the, the very elite, the very elect would be deceived, Jesus warned about. Um, why are you so hard on some Bible teachers, Pastor Brett, when you talk about guys by name? When I mention someone by name, it's because I want people to recognize that's a wrong teaching. Well, who are you, Brett? I don't claim to be anybody, but here's what I do have, and you do too. We have the word of God. And anytime somebody says something against the word of God or contrary to the word of God, I, I, I feel like it's time to say, I, I need to just speak, speak the truth, even if people don't like it. Uh, there's a lot of people that say, well, you shouldn't talk about them. Oh, I should, and I will. Because, not because I'm just trying to be a jerk, it's because people just need to know what's going on. You know the one I get the most pushback on right now when I talk about it um, is Bethel. People, people, Brad, you should, oh, here he goes again. He's gonna talk about Bethel. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, um, and it's not the, you know, I was talking about the hyper Pentecostal stuff and flopping on the floor and stuff. Did you know that that's not even, like I wouldn't even call that uh, as much like demonic or false teaching because um, that's just Pentecostals doing dumb stuff. I wouldn't even say those are essential doctrine issues. So like this video <laughs> from, from Bethel, this is a Bethel video you can look at. Uh... Does that seem decent in an order? Holy laughter, you know, stuff like that. And this goes on for a long time. I only did like 10 seconds because I couldn't handle it any longer. 
Um, and then there's just kind of weird teaching like this one. There's Bethel doing their you shall not pass uh, uh, Harry Potter style. Vision right before this event, and she saw us doing a prophetic That's Bill Johnson on the left there, the leader of Bethel. Historic. One of the movies that has really touched my heart is Lord of the Rings. So I encourage you, if you haven't done this in the proper order, you must put oil in your door and then go in front and repeat this act with us. And Gandalf stands in his authority in front of the demon and says it. The first time he hits it and it doesn't happen. The second time Gandalf does it again and still the demon is not obeying. And at the third time Gandalf puts both of his hands on the staff and he said, I said! And he hits it. And that authority is what we are talking about that can only be released by an apostolic decree. We decree and declare that racism will end, it's over, in the ecclesia from this night forward in Jesus' mighty name. Let's lift it up and bang it. <laughs> One more. We need you to agree with us. Thou shalt not pass. In the name of Jesus Christ. Now, um... The next little video here snippet is, um, see that, even that's not an, I mean, here's the problem. When we start, you know, demanding this or that, I think we have to be careful, even when it comes to Satan. Do you remember Michael, the archangel? Who's gonna be the one to ultimately bind Satan? Michael is gonna bind him up in chains. But even in the book of Jude, when, when Michael rebukes Satan, does he say, I rebuke you, devil? Is that what he says? I do that pretty good, by the way. I think I could. <laughs> Fit, fit right in. You gotta say it like that. Ah, woo! You gotta get into it. But, um, but even Michael says calmly, the Lord rebuke thee. That's, that's even Michael. And Michael is the opposite of Satan, by the way. It's not Jesus and devil are opposites, no. It's not God and the devil are opposites, no. It's Michael, the archangel, against devil, the devil who's a fallen angel. And guess who gets to win in the end? The Bible tells us Michael. But even Michael doesn't presume to say, the devil, I rebuke you. He doesn't do that. Doesn't gyrate, doesn't get, you know, uh, Gandalf's staff and uh, do all this weird stuff. There's more subtle stuff with Bethel that is actually the essential doctrine stuff. And, it, and it, this, here's a little snippet of just one of their uh, under pastors. Actually, was in this room. He was I'm laying on the floor. On the floor and in, an, in a vision, in an encounter with God, in a vision, Jesus picks me up and holds me so close that I can't see anything. And he holds me so close and Jesus starts to weep. And he says, please forgive me. Um, yeah, yeah, Jesus had to ask this, this pastor to forgive him. Um, now this is where Bethel starts to be more subtle and nobody even, you know, down there, like when I talk to people over Bethel, they're like, oh, Brad, you're, you're just, you know. But here's the, when you read Bill Johnson's books, they get into kind of this new age stuff, which they do. Um, by the way, Bill Johnson's wife, I forget her name. Uh, she's the one who does the grave soaking and stuff where she goes and lays on graves and it's something Bethel does. Even this is an essential doctrine. It's wacko and weird, soaking up C.S. Lewis's grave or whatever, or anybody who's, um, they do this stuff. But that's not the problem. The problem comes when they diminish who Jesus is. That's where it becomes an essential doctrine issue that Jesus has to ask forgiveness of this pastor and, and that we're gonna be greater than Jesus. And it, it's a, a subtle teaching in Bethel that is so off course. Meanwhile, everybody loves Bethel music. 
Because you know what? It's really good. There's a lot of really good Bethel songs. Some of the songs are a little wacko and do represent the wrong teaching of Bethel. You, you do find songs that are doctrinally off, but there's also a lot of good Bethel songs that are really good and the musicians are amazing. Some of them are friends of mine. Um, and I love, I love those guys. It's just that I can't support that doctrine. That's why Athe Greek, when people say, Brett, why don't you guys do Bethel songs here? It's because we're not really wanting to point to that doctrine and say, you know, um, and it's a bummer because I think there's some musicians that don't even know the doctrine of Bethel and they're part of the Bethel music team. Um, but I don't want to point people that direction because it's just wrong teaching, um, especially as it relates to Jesus. It's not even the glitter from the ceiling. Maybe I'll show you one more video. Um, this is the big one, the glory cloud that came down and this glitter from Michael's, uh, nobody, uh, there's actually a guy that compared the glitter you buy at Michael's with the glitter that's falling from the ceiling at Bethel. Um, and they call it the Holy glory cloud of the Holy Spirit. And they all, it's kind of a big deal, the glory cloud, glory dust. And they have, uh, this is just a work of the Holy Spirit, they said, and it's kind of, now, by the way, just for the record, I had a guy come to me seriously and say, Brett, you know, Athey's gone the way of Bethel. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, he said, you guys are doing glitter, just like Bethel. He was serious. And I said, what, what are you talking about? And I had to ask a few questions. Then I realized what happened. He had been watching online and he watched part of our New Year's Eve service. Um, and if you didn't come to our New Year's Eve service, we had some fun. The first part of our New Year's Eve service, we did some teaching and then some worship and it was great. But then it was kind of fun. We sort of did a little bit of party. We had some cinnamon rolls and did a bunch of fun stuff. But it was, we counted down the time, you know, 10, 9, 8 to New Year's. Then we had confetti cannons. They weren't falling glitter from the ceiling. It was cannons blowing huge chunks of confetti. And it was just kind of fun. Uh, something you do when you're celebrating and doing a party. It had nothing to do, I'm saying this for the record, nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, okay? It was just us being kind of, you know, goofy and thinking it'd be fun to have some, some uh, there was no Holy Ghost dust uh, here at Athey. Just for the record, I was embarrassed for him that he actually thought that really happened. He should have probably watched more than 10 seconds of the video. But anyway, um, watch out for false teaching and it's ever so subtle. And the reason why Bethel, I, I pick on that right now is because that's the one that is teaching some of the most dastardly stuff, but it's not the gold dust and it's not the grave soaking. It's not the flopping in the aisle. It's diminishing who Jesus Christ is. Do not do that. That's crossing a line. Those other things were crazy enough, if you ask me, but that's not the reason I would call them out. There's a lot of other churches that do crazy things, but when you start diminishing Jesus, that's an essential doctrine of the Christian faith that you don't cross that line. So I'm gonna keep, as, as a, as a you know, Bible teacher, that's something we have to do. Acts chapter 20, verses 25 through 32. Let me just read that to you real quick. Um, just so you know, this is my role as a pastor and every other pastor too. It says, behold, I know that you all among whom I've gone preaching to the kingdom of God shall see my face no more, Paul says. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. I'm, I'm free of a guilty conscience. For I have not shunned to declare unto you the, all the counsel of God. That's why we go through the Bible. Um, and he says, take heed to yourselves. That's the pastors of the church and the elders. Um, and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The word overseer there is episkopos, which is the word uh, more modernly translated bishop. 
Brett, do you have bishops at Eighth Greek? We don't because the name got creepified by uh, movies and by the Catholic Church and some Episcopal Church and others. Bishops are kind of a weird thing. Pointy hats, staffs, incense, and stuff like that. So we don't use the name bishop, but we do have what we call governing elders. Those are the, the, the Episcopos elders. Those are the ones that are um, governing and um, leading uh, the, 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 the church. Um, and the Lord has made them overseers to feed the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. Man, that's a serious thing to be in, putting in charge of, the, the, the church of Christ. For he says, I, he goes on, for I, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves, Paul says, enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So what's perverse? A guy saying, Jesus asked me to forgive him. Like Jesus is a common sinner. That's a perverse thing. And that's part of Bethel's draws that people say bold things that are just untrue, but they're bold enough to where people go, oh, wow, that's amazing. And they're drawn to it. To draw disciples away after them. Therefore watch, remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. And he says, now brethren, I command, uh, commend to you God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all of them which are sanctified. So yes, the, the leadership at Aether Creek, we feel it's part of our job, especially our governing elders. That's the, you call it what you want, episcopos, bishops, uh, the ones that are administratively and spiritually leading the congregation. We're supposed to watch over and warn the flock that Jesus purchased with his own blood. So all that said, you know, that's, what, that's what's being said here in this divine recompense here in chapter 10, verse two of Zechariah. The, there was a bunch of people that were ripping off the people. Um, they were, uh, notice some of the names. They, they were diviners, verse two. Uh, what's a diviner? They're people that were not prophets, but they were telling the future, sort of like a psychic friends network or a fortune teller. They were um, men that would tell the future. Um, by the way, in, in Zechariah's time, they had a practice where they would cut open a chicken pull out its liver and they would read the liver of the chicken and they could tell what was gonna happen in the future. People just get stupid. Um, that's what they were doing in Zachariah's time. They were diviners. Not that there is um, no power in that. There's evil power behind a lot of those things. But back in Bible times, they had false teachers. That they would stone them to death if that happened. Today, you give them a letter with a check in it. Uh, the false teachers, sad to say. So uh, watch out for the subtle, um, you know, this counterfeit uh, word from God. God condemns all of these things. Diviners, those that have sold false dreams, comfort people in vain. They were, they were basically giving words like, you're gonna be victorious and you're gonna be awesome. Everything's gonna be wonderful. And that's not true. They were comforting people in vain, giving words of, of uh, affirmation when they should have been giving words of warning. And on and on it goes, you know, this, this is evil at its best right here. Uh, and the people were duped by the evil shepherds. And the Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna thump on these guys. The, a divine recompense is what he says here. So that's verse, uh, verses two and three. Um, then we have the third section, the divine redeemer. The divine redeemer. This is where I love, it says in verse four, suddenly it just kind of pops out. It says, out of him came forth the corner out of him, the nail, out of him, the battle bow, out of him, every oppressor together. Now this is one of those verses, the, the King James is a little hard uh, to discern. 
Um, but whenever you read a verse, you're like, what is this all about? And I don't know if I understand things. One of the things you can do with the various good translations that are out there is compare. And then you might get hints as you read some of the other. If you don't have a Greek or Hebrew uh, dictionary or uh, interlinear or whatever. Um, so let, let me show you how this works. If you take some of, you know, some of the newer translations like the ESV, I really like the ESV. How many of you guys read out of the ESV Bible? See, a lot of you guys, it's, it's a good translation, really good. Um, but it says, um, well, this, sorry, pardon me, NIV first, then the ESV. Um, the NIV says, um, uh, and from Judah, that's an important part that the Hebrews does imply, but the King James doesn't. From Judah will come the cornerstone. Does this start to make sense now? Because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected by the men. Like suddenly the NIV kind of, oh yeah, now I know what it's talking about. From him, the tent peg, see in the King James, instead of calling it tent peg, um, it's, it's the nail. So you're like, wait, what's the nail? Well, the tent peg, um, and then the battle bow, um, and then from him, every ruler. What's, what's going on? Well, let's take another look as you keep looking at the newer translations. The ESV says, from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. What this is saying is the him is the one from the house of Judah, the cornerstone, which we know that's Jesus. Um, and by the way, those first two the, the cornerstone, is that is the, the cornerstone, is that referring to the first coming or the second coming of Christ? First, and we know that because, anybody? The cornerstone was rejected, that's it. He was the rejected cornerstone. That's the reason we know that's kind of the first coming. Now the tent peg refers to uh, the tabernacle, and we could go on this in depth, but um, the tabernacle tent pegs, if you went through the study on the tabernacle with us when they built the tabernacle in our Old Testament studies, um, each part of the tabernacle has its symbols, but the tent pegs hold the tabernacle down, it anchors it, but they were, they were tent pegs made of silver, which is kind of an interesting thing. Silver is the metal of, anybody remember? You're, you're on the right track. Blood or redemption, redemption. Um, and so the tent peg is kind of the symbol in the Old Testament of Jesus, our redeemer, who were held down firmly, tabernacling with the Lord's presence by Christ in his redemption. There's, there's all kinds of imagery there that's really cool that we could get into. Um, but then the battle bow, first coming or second coming? That's more of the second coming. See, this is where Zechariah uniquely sort of meanders in and out of the first coming and the second coming. Um, but the battle bow, um, uh, and then the, the big question is who's every ruler, all of them together? Um, most believe, Bible scholars would say, that's us who come with Christ because we're gonna be uh, leading with Christ. We get to rule and reign with Christ. And so some people say that's um, you know, the Lord of hosts the Lord is coming. And it reminds us, you know, of the conquering, the second coming, like in, um, you know, um, Matthew 21, 42 talks about the builders rejecting the cornerstone. Um, that's, that's that verse we were talking about, about the cornerstone. Um, but, uh, but then, um, you know, in this divine redeemer, the reason we say redeemer is because of that, the, um, that's what he does. He holds us down in his tabernacle, the tent, the tent stake, but then he brings us to the glorious second coming of Christ in like Psalm 24. I love that, where it says, you know, there in Psalm, and we don't have time tonight to read the whole thing, but Psalm 24, you can look it up, but the, the Lord is mighty in battle, and he's also called there the Lord of hosts. That's his second coming. 
And that's what's uh, speaking about here in the, the part of this verse where it says, his battle bow out of him, every oppressor together, or those, the word oppressor is a bad, difficult translation there. It's more of a, a ruler who's coming with Christ. So anyway, a little difficult verse, but it's a glorious speaking of Christ. First coming and his second coming, tucked away in that single verse, even though the Jews have been duped in verses uh, two and three, the Redeemer's still coming. Don't you love that? So we have that, the divine Redeemer. Um, that's number three. Number four, as we go on uh, into the next verse, uh, verses five to the beginning of verse seven, we have a divine restoration. Check it out. It says in verse five, and they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. And they shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on the horses shall be confounded. And I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph and I will bring them again to place them for I have mercy upon them and they shall be as though I had not cast them off for I am the Lord their God and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man. Notice, notice here the Lord saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna restore and bless Israel, but I'm gonna make the Israel, um, the men of Israel, uh, mighty men. Um, and the Lord's restoring them, not just as they've been scattered all over the world, but he regathered them in might. Um, and, and it's interesting to do a study on the word mighty. The Hebrew word, the singular word is givor, um, but, the, but the plural is givorim, which means mighty, strong, valiant. And this restoration is um, some, you know, someday, the Lord's saying in the future, the Jew is gonna be once again deemed as a mighty man. Uh, the idea is esteemed as the mightiest. And what's interesting about that, by the way, um, <laughs> um, what's interesting about that is um, we, we understand that the mighty men of Israel, we're starting to see that happen right now. And so one of the things you and I have to really be uh, cognizant of is when you see the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, and they're having battles like what we talked about on Sunday, the Yom Kippur War, um, you know, the Six Day War, the War of Independence. Um, people in the world marvel at Israel and they say, how do they do it? How do, how do the Jews, and, and, and we know that there's, they're certainly skilled and they have technology and all that stuff, but they've also been given sort of a divine protection in these latter days. I think we're starting to see this givor word come to pass um, in modern time. But all that to say, uh, divine restoration is gonna be restoring Israel back to their proper place, ultimately the millennial kingdom uh, as the mighty men of the, of the Lord. And there's a bunch of other little things here. Did you notice um, uh, the rider and the horse? Check it out there and in, in, in you might say, Brett, um, are there gonna be people riding horses in the last days? Interesting Hebrew words here for the rider and the horse. The word for rider is rakav, which um, um, just, it doesn't necessarily mean a horseman, but it means somebody mounting up on something and riding it. Um, and then the word sus, uh, it can be horse, but it's also for, um, the, the, there's interesting words associated with the word, anything that's swift or even um, flying like a bird is kind of the idea, um, in swift in flight and if someone were to ride even a bird. So um, you might say, Brett, uh, are they gonna ride horses in the last days? Don't know. Is there gonna be a horse and rider in battle at the Battle of Armageddon? The Bible talks about how the blood will flow to the horse's mane. Are there gonna be literal horses? 
I don't have the foggiest. But the Hebrew wording here doesn't require it necessarily to be horses. It means men riding something that's swift is the real Hebrew con- uh, context here. Um, maybe, you know, Zachariah is seeing uh, modern day Israeli jets uh, flying and, and the mighty men of the IDF, you know, going into battle in the last days. Uh, maybe it's that, or maybe it's horses. Well, Brett, why would they need horses? Have you ever heard about the EMP weapons that we have today? Um, you know, there's, there could be a time in battle where people are gonna wish they had a horse and a bow and an arrow because an EMP is an electromagnetic pulse weapon that detonates well above into the atmosphere but causes anything electronic to be fried and no longer functioning. Um, and we've actually seen, there's actually been uh, examples of that weapon used in the world today. Um, could you imagine on a battlefield of suddenly everything with electronics in it is now no longer functioning? I mean, it's amazing if you see the basic rifles that people have and some of the optics that, that some of our military uses, if all that stuff gets fried, suddenly you're back to iron sights, minimally, or maybe a guy just will want a slingshot, who knows? Because they won't have the readiness to ammunition and all that stuff. Like it really is curious, it makes you wonder if there is a time coming where a guy with a horse is gonna be back uh, to those things. I don't know, I wouldn't make that case but I think it is interesting uh, that the Bible doesn't require it to be a horse and a rider. It can be a person mounted on something very fast. That's the idea. So um, the Lord's gonna restore Israel back to their mighty, uh, you know, as in the day of battle. Uh, that's what we see there in that section. Number five, we're almost done. Number five, a divine rejoicing. And that's there in verse seven, the second part of it. Verse seven, they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. I love that, that that there's a rejoicing. Is the Lord into joy? You know, um, some people take this too far. God wants you to be happy, you know, and they kind of talk about, you know, if you're not happy, then there's something, you know, sin or whatever. Could be, but not always. But the Lord is in fact into you and I experiencing joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We get to trust in the Lord. Jesus was joyful. How joyful was Jesus? Some of you guys, I didn't know Jesus was joyful. I saw the movie and he looked stoned like a (laughs) 70s uh, hippie that was walking around all stoned. Uh, Looked like he smoked a little too much weed. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. We know that for sure and I'll tell you why. Do you remember what little children did around Jesus? What do children do around the hippie that's stoned and walking with beady eyes? They run for their lives. Children do not like that dude. Um, But Jesus, it says the the children would run up and jump on his lap and they, you know, wanted to hang out with Jesus. And the disciples, they were the grouchy ones. Get these children out of here. And Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. I guarantee Jesus had a demeanor that made kids think, this guy's cool. And that's usually the kind of person I like. He's usually joyful and jolly and, and that's, you know, kids like that. But the Bible even says that Jesus was in fact anointed with the oil of gladness. Thou hast loved righteousness, hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is a word about Jesus and that he was given that anointing. I'm sure he had times of sorrow, weeping over Jerusalem, but Jesus, if you sum up who he was, he was anointed with the oil of gladness. And you say, Brett, it sounds like there's joy from wine here. Can we say that at Athey Creek? Um, We do. Uh, Did you know that Jesus was the life of the party? 
what do you mean, Brett? Remember the, the water, they were a watered down wedding there in Cana of Galilee, there in John chapter two. Uh, but Jesus comes and saves the watered down wedding. And not only did he make wine, but remember what the governor of the feast said? Man, most people bring out the really good wine. And then when everybody's well drunk, then they bring out the cheap stuff. But you've brought out the best stuff at the end. That's the stuff that Jesus had made. When you're saying it's good stuff, it's not that, well, it's so delicious. It means that it was legitimately good wine. And Jesus made that. And Jesus brought the, the, if you would, the wine of joy into that wedding ceremony. Really cool, I love that picture. And you know, Philippians chapter four tells us rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The Jews sadly have not been a rejoicing people because they've been in their own sin and their rebellion. And you know, all their music in Israel is in a minor key, you know. Uh, it's music that just kind of is in a minor tone. There's coming a day, according to verse seven, yea, their children shall see it and be glad and their hearts shall rejoice in Yahweh or Jehovah is the idea there. That's our verse uh, where we see a divine rejoicing. Number six, we see a, a divine regathering, verse eight. And it says, I will hiss for them. What are we now? Um, <laughs> It's like, you're like, hiss, this is a little weird. You're picturing, uh, who's the guy in Lord of the Rings? Precious. <laughs> like, yeah, Gollum suddenly. It's like, I didn't know Gollum was in the Bible. Um, no, the word hiss there, uh, we know this to mean what? Whistling. Now you can whistle like uh, several things and, and it's really like today. Um, when the word, the Bible uses the word hiss, it's most of the time talking about people going like in astonishment. Well, remember it says they'll walk by Jerusalem and they'll hiss and they'll say, whoa, what happened to Jerusalem? That is, they'll be going, Whew. we remember when Jerusalem was amazing and now look at it, it's a pile of rubble. But there's also the idea of hissing when you call a dog. You know, here, but, but remember the, uh, the dogs in Pirates of the Caribbean? Whew. He's got the keys, you know, and the, the pirates are like trying to get the dog to give him the key. Whew. You know, that's also in the Bible, the idea of hissing. And that's the, that's the context of this one. What's the Lord gonna do? He, he says, I will whistle for them and gather them like a dog, you know? Like, you know, come over here, you know, and your, and your horse or your dog comes running, like, which, which was it? Uh, the Lone Ranger that whistled and his horse would come running. Uh, that's the idea. I will hiss for them and gather them for I have redeemed them and they shall increase as they have increased. And verse nine, I will uh, sow them among the, the people and they shall remember me in far countries and they shall live with their children and turn again. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. And I will uh, bring them into the land of Gilead of Lebanon, uh, pardon me, and Lebanon and place uh, shall not be found for them. And he shall pass through the sea of, with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea and all the deeps of the river shall dry up. And the pride of Assyria shall be brought down and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. This might be a little troubling for a person who doesn't have um, a background in, in these places of Egypt and Assyria. Do you guys remember in Hosea, one thing you and I learned, uh, if you recall, is Egypt and Assyria was sort of an idiom for the Jews, speaking of all the nations where the Jews would be scattered. Do you guys remember that? If you jot it down in your notes, Hebrew, uh, pardon me, Hosea 11.11, kind of used those, those names, the Egyptians and the Assyrians as the two nations. They were the powerful ones at the time that were subduing Israel that would end up scattering the Jews all over the world. 
So when it says here in our text in verse 10, I will bring them again out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria, he's really talking about the diaspora being scattered all over. Um, and the Gilead there is the Golan Heights. Lebanon, of course, is what is Lebanon today. Um, and they would not have any place more for them, so they would be regathered in the land. And this is what we talked about on Sunday. The diaspora is the scattering, but in these last days, you and I are watching a, a biblically miraculous event of the Jews being regathered in might and in power. They're still being regathered right now, by the way, in unbelief. They don't, they're not gathering saying, praise the Lord, we're gonna be in Israel. No, they're just going, we need to be safe, so we're moving to Israel. But it's really the Lord doing the whole thing. And eventually their eyes will be opened during the tribulation period where they'll see Jesus as the Messiah. But even with all that, um, this verse 11 has come to pass. Uh, it'll pass through the sea with affliction. Boy, have the Jews gone through a sea of affliction? You bet. If you know their history, it's been nothing but affliction. And um, that's what that verse is all about. But eventually they're gonna be regathered and God is the one who does that. All through the Bible, there's prophecies about this. This Zechariah 10 is just one small thing. Uh, read um, Ezekiel 36 and 37, the valley of dry bones and the gathering of the bones. And this is all the same prophecy of the Jews being regathered and eventually have life be brought back and might brought back to the Jews. That's all coming. Well, a divine regathering, and we see that. Finally, lastly, a divine renovation. And the final verse here, it says in verse 12, and I will strengthen them in the Lord and they shall walk up and down in his name, saith the Lord. And I love that. I've marked that. I will strengthen them in the Lord. The Jews have been, um, you know, hated, despised, rejected, beaten down. But the Lord says, I'm coming to strengthen them. There's, there's coming a time where um, there's gonna be hope for the future and, um, and I've got a plan and a purpose. And by the way, the Lord has that same plan for you. You might feel like you're in a bad time or a bad place, but don't lose hope. The Lord will strengthen you in his time, in his due time. You might be going through really hard things. Just ask the Jews, they know what you're going through. But good news, you and I as Gentile church or New Testament believers, we know that the Lord wants to strengthen us in his timing and it might be different. Hopefully it's different than when the Jews, because we know when the Jews are gonna be strengthened, it's in the tribulation period. You and I are gonna be strengthened minimally at the rapture of the church. That's glorious when we're taken up to be with the Lord. So we have hope, something to hope for. Does having hope make a difference? Um, I love that study that was done like in the 70s. It was kind of brutal. You know, they, a bunch of scientists took up uh, like 10 rats and they put them in a tub of water and just had the rats swim around and it took them four hours to drown. They timed it, poor little rats. Um, but then they took a second group of rats, 10, 10 of the same kind of rats, put them in the tub. And at about three hours, they pulled them out of the water, dusted them off, fed them some nice food, you know, uh, took good care of them. And then they threw them back in the vat of water. And they're swimming around, you know, again, do you know how long they lasted? They lasted 24 hours, then they drowned. You're like, that's so sad. But, but what was it that made them last 24 hours as opposed to the original four? The difference is a little rat brain had hope and there was enough hope that they'd get fluffed up again and get some food and taken out of the water that they just kept, kept treading water. Um, and, and I wonder sometimes, you know, you might feel like a rat in a tub and you're going down, but good news, the Lord's not gonna let you drown. 
the Lord says he will never let the righteous be moved. He, he, no man can pluck you out of the hand of the Father. That's what John 10.10 uh, 10 tells us. So we have the hope in Christ and he's not gonna get us out and fluff us up only to drown us. He's gonna take us out and save us and he does that. So man, we have good news, amen? Amen. Lord, we're so thankful for this truth. We thank you, Lord, that, um, that you have taken good care of us and you have a plan for us. Lord, we're, we're excited for your people. Um, we know the Jews have a rough uh, future ahead of them. Uh, even as we see the prophecies of Zechariah, they're still gathering in unbelief, but we know there's a time coming where their eyes will be opened, where you're gonna save them again as a people. Um, but until then, Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the Jews and that they would see and ready them, Lord, that they would see Jesus as the Messiah. Lord, until that happens, we know that the end is not yet. But we do know the rapture could happen at any moment. So we look with anticipation. Lord, I pray that you'd make your church waiting and watching and ready, Lord. So bless these people who've gone through this section of scripture tonight. Lord, may it bring forth good fruit in our lives in Jesus' name, amen.